the sounds of tens of thousands of people from around the world who gathered in Montreal for COP15 as we moved into 2023. COP15? I thought we just had COP27 in Egypt. Well, COP27 was the global conference on climate change. COP15 is the global conference on biological diversity. Really? Why is there a separate conference on biodiversity? It's because we now face two interrelated global crises, climate change and the accelerating loss of biodiversity. And species extinction has become so extreme that the theme of COP15 was One Earth, One Chance. And the goal is to preserve 30% of the Earth's land and sea by 2030. Wow. Sounds like the stakes couldn't get any higher. And we have about 10 years left before we start to see most of the major ecosystems on Earth unravel because of the threats posed against them from climate change, from land use, land cover change, from invasions of exotic species, from overhunting. And we have this, this perfect storm of, of threats that, that are counteracting this. I just want to jump in here as a political scientist too, because unfortunately you're right. These conventions oftentimes don't have teeth, but the thing is they could. And we need them. We do need them because we have to coordinate action at a planetary scale, which we've really actually kind of never done before. We've had a little bit of practice with the the climate crisis, but we're still figuring that out, right? So we need this to work, but we've clearly seen that our leaders are too timid without our help. And that's why we have to make visible constituencies to support them whether it's around ecocide, whether it's around half, whether it's around 1.5 degrees, we have to use our voices and our bodies to show visibly that this is unacceptable. We have to lead our leaders. It's also worth noting that these types of particular negotiations that are happening right now at this CBD will not take place until year 2030 again. They'll check their targets every year, but These negotiations happening here and now are the single most important negotiations of our lifetime. It's a very scary thing to think about. And so we need civil society, we need all sectors of society, we need media, we need mass attention to what's happening here and now behind closed doors. I'm just seeing the business and finance industry just spewing their standard corporate esoteric blab and the same old keywords and buzzwords they've been using. And it's just, it's such a politically and, I wouldn't even say economically, a financially appeasing strategy for the masses. And it's not right, it's incorrect. And I've heard so much talk today about biodiversity credits and it's making me sick. You cannot, for the life of me and for all good things holy, please, can we not be trading carbon? Can we not be trading all of this stuff? That just makes it so much easier for us to pollute. communities have all the answers and so we are the ones that are setting the table and I think that's what's different right it's you see you hear a lot about um, government down this is community up
After years of campaigning and massive pressure from across the planet, nearly 200 governments came together to hash out a deal for nature. There was drama, nail-biting into the 11th hour, but the voice of the global community was deafening at every step and had a major impact on the outcome. On Podcast for the Planet, we bring you many of those voices. Scientists, activists, indigenous leaders, youth, business strategists, and many others. What did they have to say about COP15? Find out on today's episode. One Earth, One Chance, Many Voices. Podcast for the Planet is an exclusive production of Stop Ecocide International. I'm your host, Eric Aris, and I'm joined today by guest host Donna Grace Campbell. What is happening right now is that we are at the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, which is misnamed. Um, Biological diversity is a very sterile term uh, for the total relationships and species that make up our life sphere and that produce every single life service, life product, oxygen, weather, uh, soil fertility that we need to survive. My name is Amy Lewis. I am the Vice President of Policy and Communications at the Wild Foundation. This press conference that we had was to bring urgent attention to one of the necessary cornerstones of a solution to stop mass extinction and halt the climate emergency. That is the scientific consensus of protecting half of Earth's land and seas. That's how much space nature needs at a minimum to continue to function to produce life on this planet. We have a background rate of extinction that's anywhere between 1,000 and 10,000 times higher than um, the typical background extinction rate. And that is with 34% of the planet protected and conserved. Right now we have about 17% of terrestrial areas in, um, in protected areas, and we have another 17% that are um, well, high, well stewarded indigenous lands with incredibly high amounts of biodiversity. Um, to, combined, that's 34%. So if we're going to take this crucial time in history um, to commit to protecting 30% by 2030, we're actually moving backwards. Um, we're actually, I say we're defending the status quo here, but we're not even defending the status quo. We're, we're defending something that's less than the status quo. So why waste all this time, money, and energy to go backwards? Now is the time when we have to be acting with an urgency. We have to be acting courageously in order to protect um, not just the future, but protect 
our own present because we we already see that we the, the, the thresholds we're crossing are having incredible impact on um, on communities around the world from fires from drought um, from the the loss of the biodiversity they need for subsistence and and 1.6 billion people on this planet depend directly on biodiversity for their livelihoods so this isn't just about the future this is about the present because we are living these emergencies right now Amy spoke at an emergency press conference during COP15 held by some of the world's leading NGOs. There, Dr. Eric Dinnerstein, Director of Biodiversity and Wildlife at Resolve and Chief Scientist of World Wildlife Fund for 25 years, laid out the details of the emergency we are in. Uh, I'd like to give you maybe more of the science that fleshes out uh, the validity of why we need to protect 50%. First of all, let's start with the presumption that 30% is enough. We have yet to see a paper published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature that makes that claim. There's, there's no serious biodiversity scientist who would say that 30% is enough. The goal of trying to stabilize Earth's climate is intimately linked to reversing biodiversity loss and how reversing biodiversity loss is intimately linked to stabilizing the climate. In other words, they're interdependent. There there are many examples of that from tropical rainforests because of their diversity are able to to sequester more carbon, to coral reefs because of their diversity to be able to sequester more carbon, and the effect of rising sea surface temperatures or rising temperatures on land affecting both have negative feedbacks to tropical forests and coral reefs. So the case is made there, there is this interdependence, and the simplest way to say it, as we biologists would like to put it, is that 50% is our 1.5 degrees. That's the target that we have to focus on. The question we need to ask to ourselves is, if, if this were in the time of Noah, would he have been satisfied with only 60% of an ark? Why would you not build out the rest of it? And that's the question that we face today. We only have 10 years to do it. So we urge everybody to follow the science that leads us to sound policy and leads us to 50%. Science is telling us that this is the critical moment. We have about 10 years to turn it around. Because of this, youth from around the world are demanding urgent action. Stop Ecocide considers youth 18 to 35. And I think that that's very interesting because we're talking about not just Gen Z, but also millennials and two generations worth of people who are now forced to make the biggest life decisions that they will be making um, with great consideration of the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis. So we're talking about where they're going to school, whether they're going to school, uh, career choices, where they're going to live safely, and whether or not to have children. That's Dana Dolazar, advocate, speaker, filmmaker, and climate activist from the west coast of Canada. She was a panelist on Young Leaders in Defense of the Earth and a Livable Future. These two generations um, have now been exposed to constant fear and anxiety about their future for very valid reasons and are trying to make these decisions So I think that there's a tendency to sort of dismiss youth voices 
um, because we think that the youth are something that is going to be happening in the future. They're going to be making decisions in the future. And the truth is, we've been saying that for long enough. And what needs to happen to help youth and all people is immediate action, urgent and immediate action. We saw urgent and immediate action just recently during the pandemic. We know what emergency response looks like um, through historic examples such as the Second World War. And these COPs and these meetings, um, they, they, they do make us uh, frustrated and angry because what's coming out of them is not urgent emergency proportionate response to the, to the, the crime that we are seeing happening in this world. We need an ecocide law. We need to socially, morally, and legally declare that it is not okay for us to destroy the ecosystems and living earth that we depend on to survive. In our laws, we decide what is, what is okay and what is acceptable, and the fact that we don't have an international law criminalizing ecocide is wrong and it's lunacy. So I believe the first thing that we need to do is to have an international law criminalizing ecocide. Youth voices were loud and abundant, and COP15 gave priority to those whose future will be most affected. And that we have a voice in these negotiations, and that we have a place to bring our voices in these negotiations of a text and input our points. I think that's where that gets a lot of youth motivated to work and you know bring the grassroots level voices right up to this global level. So when they know that we have the recognition, that's that's the strongest push that we have. So I'm Shruti. I am from the Global Youth Biodiversity Network. I am part of the India chapter, the coordinating one of the coordinators of the India chapter. And you are? My name is Sudha, and I'm also part of the Global Youth Biodiversity Network and coordinating the India chapter of Gibbon along with Shruti. These two sisters coordinate the India chapter of the Global Youth Biodiversity Network, Gibbon. Gibbon is an international network of youth organizations and individuals from around the world whose common goal is to prevent the loss of biodiversity. With more than 1 million members, 600 member organizations, and 50 regional and national chapters, it is the official youth constituency to the Convention on Biological Diversity. And so we have been doing consultations over all of these years to try to really understand what the priorities are of the youth. And that's one of the manifestos, in the, one of the topics in the manifesto that we submitted to the uh, executive secretary. And so that talks about at least three priorities that we as Gibbon are pushing for, which is transformative education, intergenerational equity, so it is uh, equity between generations and also among generations, not just between, with, like, within sectors, within youth, also within sectors. So that's what also we are looking for. And also the rights of nature and humans. Uh, transformative education is more holistic education, where people, children go out into nature, see it for themselves, and understand the complexities that exist, because unless and until they see the complexities by themselves, they won't know how to solve these issues that exist. Because most of the times, the uh, issues with biodiversity include social and ecological crisis. It's not just ecological crisis, a lot of social issues are associated with it. So unless the children see it for themselves and understand what exactly is happening on ground, there's no way they can provide solutions. Because classroom-based education can get us only so far. I would like to see a world where we, the business as usual, the profit-driven society changes and kind of focuses on respecting nature. Because a lot of conversation revolves around 
giving economic value to nature and that's that's a good way to do it but we need to shift from looking at uh, nature and businesses as looking at money in the context of money and looking at more how if you act in this way a particular species can be conserved for this generation of time or it can go on for a long generation of time you need to look at it from a species or nature perspective rather than looking at it from a profit society and that's what gibbon is also pushing for and a lot of youth believe that because so far business as usual has gotten us into a deep crisis and we don't want that to continue and we need to live in a world where nature is the priority and that's the first thing that anybody looks at before making a decision peoples are the best stewards of biodiversity um hands down 80% of the remaining biodiversity on this planet are on indigenous lands nearly 40% of the remaining wild lands on this planet are in in indigenous land so so indigenous people absolutely are critical in terms of the solution and and the less we interfere with them the less we tell them what to do the more empowered they are going to be to continue to steward biodiversity at the levels that we need we shouldn't be telling them what to do we should be asking from them for help on what we could do better we should be asking them how should we change our culture so that we can be better stewards of biodiversity Hello, my name is Danielle Frank. My hoopa name is Hosahona, translating roughly to uh, abalone eyes. I am from the villages of Metdelding, Tewinalding, and Hontananting along the Klamath and Trinity Rivers on what's now known as the Hoopa and Yurok Reservations in Northern California. I am Miss Natinahoe of the Hoopa Valley Tribe and the Youth Coordinator for Save California Salmon. Um, some of the best examples that I can point out from my people are cultural fire. We burn in a way that's sustainable. We know that fire was gifted to us by Creator as a tool in order to make sure that our homelands remained healthy. And so we burn our we burn our forest for acres and acres and miles through without ever burning trees. We burn these invasive species and we burn even our native species off the ground so that next spring they rejuvenate and they're alive again in a way that they're meant to be. You know, we didn't ever combat forest fires before colonization. They didn't exist because they're not supposed to. We know how to take care of our lands and when that was taken from us is when all of these catastrophic things in our communities start happening. And so when from my personal experience, I've seen the way that cultural fire can be used as a tool and I've seen the way that for example, US forestry went and burned in New Mexico. I think it was two summers ago. Uh, controlled burn without consulting any tribes and they burned down over 30,000 acres of land. They burned down homes, they hurt people, and they did all of this and all of that would have been avoided if they simply reached out to the indigenous people of those lands asking for help. We want to take care of these lands. We're just not allowed to. We all know that an ecosystem needs its 
uh, native species in order to be proclaimed as healthy and successful. It needs its native plants, it needs its native wildlife, and it needs its native people. Native people have, people in, in general, have always been part of the ecosystem. These lands never took care of themselves. My people have been here dated by an anthropologist. They were, we've been on our Aboriginal land for 10,000 plus years. And in those 10,000 years, with millions of people in these areas, we kept our lands clean, we kept them healthy, and we understood that we had to coexist. We're working towards getting all of our fire rights back. Um, we do have a study going right now that will most likely end up in Supreme Court, but we have been there on our water rights before. Having these lawyers, having these modern-day warriors, that's what the saying is in my community. A modern-day warrior is a lawyer because in our tribes, we have to go fight these people in court to make sure that we have these rights because it seems that the only thing that they respect are pieces of paper. So we have to go make sure that they sign on to these pieces of paper and the way that we do that is we take them to court, we take them to Supreme Court, we'll take it to the president if we have to to make sure that our lands are protected. You almost have to speak two languages to be a warrior in the way that actually makes change these days. But my people have done it and we will continue to do it. We might not always be welcomed into this space, but it's so inspiring to see a huge indigenous presence at these conferences. It's just inspiring to see that no matter what, we will persevere. No matter, you know, we're here for a reason. They tried their best to exterminate us, to stomp us out. But we hold our space in these conferences. We hold our space on our reses as an indigenous person and celebrating that we are still here. And for the people who do come to these conferences, I just want to thank you for coming with your regalia and holding your space as an indigenous person. It really inspires me to continue working towards what I want to. My name is Diet. I am from the Yukon Territory in Thuan Munkei, Kwani country. I am a Southern Toshone and I'm here performing music. was huge changes in our life, um, our lifestyles with, because disease was brought in and, and, you know, communities were devastated. My community included were devastated for many years. And then you just have, you know, there's the, the environment itself um, has been so resilient for so long, but we don't have control over what happens in other parts of the planet. And we are in this per perfect little spot for, for global warming and climate change and heat <laughs> to affect these beautiful non-polar ice caps that we are in our home. These are, you know, these are the world's largest non-polar ice fields. And, um, and, and there's huge changes in this big, big lake that has fed us for, you know, like thousands and thousands of years and, and things have changed with glaciers and shifting and river piracy and all kinds of things that have happened that have depleted that, that big lake. 
you know, so this growing up, you don't think that something so majestic and huge can ever be changed and altered. But in the space of two weeks, you know, four years ago, it 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 was completely changed forever, right? So there's there's just so many things that you know, round and eat, and all of that affects the the wildlife and the the big game and the harvest, you know, that we depend on um, to maintain traditional lifestyles, right? Look at what you're doing. Look at how what you're doing is affecting everything around you. And that's a lesson that we learned, that traditional knowledge that we were imparted with as children, is that nobody is going to tell you 25 times how to do something. You have to listen. You have to learn to use your ears and your eyes. And you have to learn to read people and read your environment. Because if you don't learn to listen to those things, um, you get lost really easily. And it's really hard to find your way back. Our communities have all the answers. And so we are the ones that are setting the table. And I think that's what's different, right? It's, you see, you hear a lot about um, government down. This is community up. My name is Christine Smith-Martin. My Haida name is Hat Yella. I come from the Yaklanis clan of Haida Gwaii. And uh, my grandmother was Lavina White. And my mother was Pinky Smith. And uh, I grew up in a small community in, in Lachwalams. Coastal First Nations is an indigenous organization comprised of a number of BC Coastal First Nations. They protect and restore ecosystems in their lands and waters. Their keystone project is the Great Bear Rainforest, a hugely successful conservation initiative that is now expanding to include the marine environment, the Great Bear Sea. In a landmark announcement at COP15 that explicitly acknowledged the importance of indigenous land stewardship, the Canadian government announced $800 million of investment in four regions across Canada under Indigenous stewardship, $200 million of which will go to the Great Bear Sea Project. We're very proud of the work that we've done and the Great Bear uh, Rainforest Agreement. That's very near and dear to us, and it's still 15 years later paying dividends to our community. It provides support to our stewardship uh, offices throughout of our communities. It provides those jobs and businesses. It is really a model, I think, that we can all take a look at. It. And it's indigenous land. It was our communities that said, we want to do it this way and built it to where it is. It's, it's, it's so successful that we want to make sure that we duplicate it. And, and I think the world is watching. That financial piece has been duplicated in nine different countries around the world. So we're hoping to do the same with the Great Bear Sea. Our communities know the answers to that, whether it's clam, clam beds over here, or this is where the salmon come to rest before they go into the ocean. But those are those are, are traditional knowledge pieces. That is so important, and now those are going to be front and center because we've always said those traditional knowledge pieces, but most of the time people didn't listen. 
now they're listening. So now we get to be in the driver's seat and say, let's develop these pieces and let's do it in a holistic way. It's an Indigenous-led conservation. And uh, we're very happy about the announcement because I, I think it's an acknowledgement that the best people to do that are the people that are that are in these communities. We're innovators. And the fact that we've been able to, you know, we started off at 110 million, we're now up to 486 million. Like, I don't know any other places that give you that return and those are the, those are the comments that I say you know to both our government partners is look at what we've already done we're not trying to guess what that looks like we've already done it we've done it successfully and our communities are very happy and, and we're excited about seeing the sea one. Christine speaks about the success of Indigenous peoples inhabiting and stewarding the land in right relationship. In Kenya the government is beginning to acknowledge the importance of Indigenous Kenyans native pastoralists to retaining biodiversity, a reversal of colonial practices that sought to remove people from the land, a misguided and detrimental policy known as fortress conservation. These tourist places are created with the idea that a conservation or a tourist place needs to look the way that imitates or reproduces wilderness that was lost elsewhere. And that kind of wilderness is imagined without having people inhabiting those spaces. So then it leads to conservation models that, um, that we call fortress conservation. We have national parks being created from the colonial period, where which entail like removing people from their places, their homes, and um, you know like driving them away, and then building fences and making it criminalizing trespass or I should not even call it trespass, accessing those spaces. So my name is Karioki Kirigia. I come from Kenya. I'm a postdoc a fellow at Concordia University. My postdoc is now looking into institutions of conservation and trying to look at how uh, these institutions of conservation often exclude local communities. Nowadays, because you know the government realized, if we want, we want to actually conserve wildlife, because then wildlife numbers are you know like declining so much, we need to actually involve people. So that's when now we started to see here the language of uh, community-based conservation. In Kenya, our policies and laws actually do recognize the communities. Um, Previously, you know, uh, during the colonialism, we used to, we had for fortress conservation, uh, you know, where communities were moved out of their land to give way for tourism. My name is Joyce Mbataru. I come from Kenya. I work for an organization called Kenya Wildlife Conservancies Association. It's a national umbrella body that brings together community and private conservancies in the country. We have about 215 of these conservancies. Um, whose main objective is wildlife conservation. When you push people out, you're also denying them certain relations with the environment, which are usually very important to actually conserve this, you know, the biodiversity within this environment. The argument is forests follow people. So when you push people out, you're denying certain relations that actually have the potential to, to even enrich biodiversity. Conservancies as a concept existed before it became law. So it was a practice. They were already doing it. They were coexisting with wildlife and doing their other land uses like livestock especially because wildlife, uh, livestock management is a compatible um, you know, uh, land use with wildlife and therefore you know, when, um, when w- they were already doing it and then the government realized actually this as a concept is already working. So they were borrowing, they were taking the lessons of what was happening in practice and put it into policy. 
this ecocide we see is, for instance, the calls for modernity, where pastries is presented as a traditional. So the use of traditional tells us it's per se. You need to do modern way of, 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 of living or keeping livestock. And what we've seen in places where land has been privatized, fences have been put up, and so that reduces the mobility of people, but also wildlife. And those fences now become death traps for wildlife. Karaoke and Joyce are describing how Kenya is now recognizing that the removal of pastoralists from the land has resulted in biodiversity loss and ecocide, a toxic remnant of Kenya's colonial past misgovernance. This is an example of how the Global North's exploitation of the Global South has been detrimental, not only to the ecosystems there, but to the entire global biosphere. And the ramifications affect us all. We have to understand that the impact of climate change and biodiversity loss is going to be felt by every single person. The challenge, though, is that it's going to be different for different parts of the world. And there's some really long-term systematic uh, differences in the global north, global south defined. I'm Alex Antonelli. I'm the director of science at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in the UK. And I'm also a professor of biodiversity at the University of Gothenburg and a visiting professor in Oxford. So I think... We are going to see those effects coming to the global north and some of the wealthier societies as well. And that's going to be in the format of uh, supply chains that are disrupted. But right now, a lot of people are already experiencing the loss of nature and biodiversity in their daily lives. So we have to be acknowledging those differences and the fact that it is going to affect all of us uh, and it's going to be a long-lasting effect as well. So there's a major loss within species, uh, there's a major loss of species themselves, and that's at a global, regional and local level. So it's a really concerning picture, and we know that unless we change radically the way we live in our lives and our societies are sustaining themselves, we are going to enter a new phase of mass extinction that we haven't seen for perhaps 66 million years. Personally, and that's my personal view, it's not my organizational view or my organization of, my, of the countries I'm working in, I do think that ecocide uh, is one very important step towards concretizing and legitimizing um, you know, the, the protection of environments. And I think there are different aspects here, and I think the work of ecocide is going to, on the one hand, uh, create the legal framework, but there's also a mechanism to change the mindsets around destruction of an environment. And the third component, I think, is um, really the influence we may have on investments. And there's now a huge interest, I think, from companies, from governments to invest in the right things. A company and, um, you know, investors are not going to invest in something that is potentially criminal. And that's also a way of preventing and not only punishing when there's a large-scale destruction, but also preventing those from happening in the future. So I think there are several really interesting and promising uh, aspects of ecocide and I do want uh, leaders uh, to be discussing those things because you know in a sense I'm, I'm really sorry that this is actually not on uh, the discussion agenda for the meeting we are at now at COP15 and I wish there was more discussion on this to to really push this forward. As Alex points out an international criminal law of ecocide was not part of the negotiations at COP15 a key missing element. However, ecocide law was a topic at many side events organized by civil society. Canadian-born Farouk Ullah is a sustainable development policy analyst who advances work on climate, nature, and inequalities. He spoke at COP15 as a panelist on the business case for ecocide law. 
the General Assembly in July, uh, has now affirmed the universal human right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment, which means uh, as of this summer, everyone everywhere, for the first time ever, has the human right to a healthy environment. I think that's a bit special. What I found in, in this work and our work on environmentally harmful subsidies as well is that businesses' silence on these key issues is quite often used as complicity. And the first step of accountability is to shine the light. But when businesses stepped up on the human right to healthy environment, it essentially sailed through. 140 votes for, eight votes for abstentation in the General Assembly, zero against. The UK and the US voted for. The UK and the US never vote for new human rights. Nobody voted against the human right to a healthy environment. What that means is we now have a legal basis for climate justice and environmental justice movements. I think that was a missing piece of the puzzle that we didn't have before. We now need to replicate this for ecocide. So I think actually our job ahead of us is a combination of both capacity but also confidence building. And I think that's what we can focus on in the next little while. And I do firmly believe, though, if we can bring business on side, let's be honest, money talks. Money talks and governments listen. So we need business to talk about these things and to understand and to navigate. But at the same time, I think the businesses we work with would be very happy for this because it, what it does is create a level playing field and helps them achieve their own sustainability goals. And that's exciting. And there's a sequence of events here, and I think what's really, really important is also understanding the financial aspects, because this is about crime, and the basis for any good crime story is follow the money. That's what we need to do here as well. And so I think, now that we have the human right to healthy environment, I would regard that any financing of environmental harm constitutes a human rights violation, therefore is illegal. Follow the money. On the other side, the other thing we did this year was a big study around the scale and nature of environmentally harmful subsidies. We spend at least $1.8 trillion a year on subsidies to destroy the environment. I'll say that again, at least $1.8 trillion a year. We're talking about 100 billion climate finance, 100 billion biodiversity finance. I'm a bit baffled with my colleagues to say, where's the money? Where are we gonna get the money? I can tell you where the money is. There's a ton of it sloshing around the system doing bad, doing criminal activity, I would regard now. And all of that hinges on the success of the global biodiversity framework, again, as the core basis for a common understanding around what we think is environmental protection and what needs to be protected, and therefore what constitutes ecocide in a much more agreed way, an applied way. So we have the definition, now we need to apply it. To do that, we need a common framework, which is the global biodiversity framework. So all of it, I can see, hangs together in a very, very neat, tight package uh, of reform, and we can move forward on this, and I think it's very exciting. But the focus is, right now, securing an ambitious GBF. We get the economics right, then we get the law, then we do the politics. Uh, that's the sequence I can see, in my head anyway. But let's follow the money, and I think then that's the way we can pursue and operationalize ecocide. After a significant walkout by developing countries and then last-minute opposition by the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was finally resolved by high-level diplomacy, an agreement on global biodiversity framework was reached. The framework promises to put at least 30% of the planet under protection 
increase biodiversity funding by billions, and put Indigenous communities at the heart of the movement to defend life on Earth. We didn't get everything we wanted, and the deal is far from perfect. Given the non-binding nature of the agreement, it's important to realize the conditions for its application remain inadequate. Recognizing ecocide as an international crime is the key element missing from this framework. This will create a preventative barrier to deter serious harm, strengthen existing laws, and begin to redirect policies and funds to move them away from harmful practices. But it's a major step forward and could be a turning point for this beautiful planet. It was the powerful and insistent voices of the global community, some of whom you've just heard, who kept the pressure on world leaders to create the strongest ever international environmental agreement. Now is not the time to be timid. Now is not the time to be diffident. Now is the time to step up to our heroic potential and do what is necessary to ensure a sustainable and healthy future for the 8.7 million species that we share this planet with and our very own civilization. You've been listening to One Earth, One Chance, Many Voices, a Stop Ecocide International production. You can find more information on all of the voices you've heard today in the links in our podcast description. Music today by Andy Squiff and Diet. You can find their music on Bandcamp at Squiffi and Diet. That's D-I-Y-E-T. This episode was written by Paul and Donna Grace Campbell. Donna Grace Campbell is our executive producer. Dave Ronald is our sound engineer and technical wizard. I'm Eric Aris. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.